Well, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be here at the First Baptist Church of Gadsden, and uh, look forward to this for, for quite a while. I uh, came in late last night and uh, raced in time to be able to have dinner with your pastor. Made it barely in time, and it was well worth it. Just a welcome to be back in this part of the country. I am thrilled to be back in Alabama. It's hard for me to imagine it was more than 40 years ago that I came to this, uh, this great state to be a student at Sanford University. I was later elected president of the Ministerial Association and traveled all over the state of Alabama preaching in churches. And uh, it's a great, great joy to be in this church. It's a tremendous joy for me to be here because of your pastor. Um, Matt Alexander, I met uh, along with Whitney actually in uh, Mobile, Alabama when I was preaching at Dauphin Way Baptist Church and, uh, and they were there and they graciously gave me a private tour of some historic sites in, uh, in Mobile. I remember that very well and it wasn't long after that that they came to the seminary and Matt became, as he said, one of my interns and I, I knew immediately uh, there was something very, very special about this young man. Um, first of all, he's a bona fide Southern Baptist. And I want my Southern Baptist bona fide. <laughs> I want them real. I want them to know what it was like to have those big clunky white shoes tied on you by your mother before you came to church on Sunday morning. Uh, I want them to know what it is like uh, to have been raised. Uh, I'll simply say right. Uh, with Sunday school, back when I was growing up, training union, uh, the whole thing. My, uh, my parents were ardent uh, Southern Baptists, grew up in a church very much like this, in a community very much like this. And when I say very much like this, I mean right down to the architecture. I feel right at home uh, because it was in a room like this, I sat before my feet could touch the floor. And there's something holy about that. There's something wonderful about that. I enjoyed seeing all those children uh, in this uh, sanctuary this morning. Uh, they, they have a knowledge of the majesty of Christian worship. They're seeing what it means for Christians to gather together to praise the one true and, and living God. But uh, I, I am glad to be in a bona fide Southern Baptist church with a, a bona fide uh, Southern Baptist uh, pastor. Uh, I came to know Matt, his mind, his heart, and enjoyed the years of working together. My only, my only claim against you and fault that I see in you is that you took him prematurely from me. <laughs> but uh, that is forgivable. That's the way it happens in Southern Baptist life. And uh, there's something good about that, too. There's something immediately right about the calling of, uh, of Matt Alexander to this church. And there's something right about being here. Now, I'm looking forward to the School of the Prophets tonight, and uh, lots of preachers coming in. I hope you will give your time and attention to that conference as well, as uh, we're going to be preaching through Jesus' letters to the, 12, to, to the seven churches. Um, this, that's an amazing thing, that the Holy Spirit would inspire John to write these letters from Christ to these churches, and that means by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to all of us, to our churches. 
So again, it's wonderful to be here in Gadsden, wonderful to be at the First Baptist Church. Ellis Fuller was the pastor of uh, the First Baptist Church of Atlanta when he became the president of Southern Seminary in the 1940s, and we have very few recordings of him. He was a South Carolinian and had been pastor of some prominent churches in South Carolina before he became pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta and uh, then became president of the seminary. But I was listening to one of those very rare recordings of Ellis Fuller, and I was reminded of what a Southern Baptist sounded like in the 1940s. He did not say First Baptist Church. He said First Baptist Church. (laughs) And uh, I think there's something majestic in that. Here's where we are this morning. Our great privilege is to turn to God's word. I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. To Luke chapter 16. I also want to thank you as a church for what you mean not only uh, to yourselves as a congregation and not only to the community of Gadsden, Alabama, but what you mean to the work of Christ around the world through your cooperation with other Southern Baptist churches, through the cooperative program, through the fact that you... You join with 40,000 other Southern Baptist churches to do what none of us could do alone. So thank you for what you mean to us and to the world. Luke chapter 16. We're going to be looking particularly at the final portion of Luke chapter 16. And it begins in verse 19. We read together. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced. If someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Luke chapter 16 comes, as you well know, immediately after Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is a cycle of three parables about lostness and foundness. Uh, First of all, a lost sheep, and then a lost coin, and then a lost boy, a lost son. The famous parable of the prodigal son. The the parables of Luke chapter 15 are about lostness and about foundness. The shepherd is not satisfied until he finds the one sheep out of the 100 that had been lost. And when he finds it, there's great celebration. 
He calls out to his friends and neighbors saying, come celebrate with me for this sheep that I have lost, I have found. And likewise, the woman who loses one of 10 silver coins, she will not rest until she ransacks her entire house and finds that coin. And when she finds it filled with joy, she calls out to her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me for I have found that which I had lost. Jesus said, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sheep that returns than over 99 who did not go astray. Likewise, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. There will be rejoicing when even one sinner comes home, just like that woman with her coin. But then, of course, the climax of that cycle of parables about lostness and foundness is the prodigal son. It's, it's one thing to lose a sheep. It's another thing to lose a, a coin, but to lose a son and to lose a son by willful losing. He lost himself. He, he treated his father as if he were dead and he took his father's inheritance and he went off into a far land where he squandered that inheritance. And, and then when he came to himself, it's a beautiful biblical phrase, when he came to himself, he realized as he was now in a land of of poverty and famine. He was even envious of what the pigs ate. He decided to go home. And he actually said, better be a slave in my father's house than this. But when he came home, of course, his father did not receive him as a slave, but as a son. And through a celebration, just like the shepherd celebrated and the woman celebrated, this father celebrated. But he went further and he said, this son of mine was dead and is now alive. And then you recall, however, that the parable goes on and tells us that there is an elder brother who is not at all happy about this celebration, about his, his prodigal brother returning. One of our problems in reading scripture is that we too often think in chapters and verses in ways that aren't helpful. Luke did not write this gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. The chapter and verse divisions are put in later so that we can find the text together. But the text was actually written as a unit. It was written as a whole. Luke chapter 15 flows immediately into Luke chapter 16. And as you see the beginning of Luke chapter 16... It begins with Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. So another parable is coming. We're in the same cycle. We're, this is the same setting. Jesus is speaking now in Luke chapter 16, just as he was in those parables so familiar to us in Luke chapter 15. But the parables in Luke chapter 16 are not as familiar to us. I'll have to summarize the first one that begins in verse 1 of chapter 16, a dishonest manager. So, so this is a man who works for a wealthy man. He manages his business affairs, and he finds out that he's about to be fired. And so he decides that what he is going to do is that he is going to bring in everyone who owes his boss money and is going to cut a deal with them to their financial advantage to his master's financial disadvantage so that he can ingratiate himself with them and create a new future for himself. He's about to lose his job. He wants to make sure he's got a soft landing place. So he calls in a man and says, how much do you owe? And he says, 80. He says, well, just, just mark it 40. He, he, he does that repeatedly. 
But the, the master finds out. He finds out what his manager has been doing. And, and of course, he knows he's a crook. He's a, he's a fraud. He's, he's a criminal. But what does he say? He says, that's talent. He's shrewd. That's talent. It's as if he said, I now can't afford for this guy to go work for someone else. He's too shrewd. And then Jesus says, and it's, it's such an odd passage, and he, he says that the sons of, of, of the Lord, his, his own sons, his, his, his own people, the sons of light, he says, could learn something about shrewdness from the sons of darkness. That's a little shocking. I mean, let's just admit our, to ourselves, that's not what we expected Jesus to say. It's like Jesus said, you want to know how to be a good church member? Go watch The Godfather. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, what is it exactly we are supposed to learn? Larceny? Robbery? Extortion? No, what we're supposed to learn is shrewdness. Have you ever thought about this? A crook has to be shrewd or he's in jail. That's why we find it interesting. That's why, for whether it's Sherlock Holmes or Perry Mason or you name it, that's why we like to look at crime dramas because we want to solve the mystery. There was shrewdness in this. There was, there was a plan in this. And, and there are some brilliant crooks, and it takes brilliance to be a successful crook. You've got to be shrewd. You've got to be able to size up a situation. You've got to be able to devise a plan. You've got to be able to carry it off. Now, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this. If for the sake of the gospel, my people were half as shrewd as criminals for, for the sake of their criminality, just imagine what the church would look like. He is not telling us to do anything wrong. He's simply saying, be shrewd. Look at a situation for the cause of the gospel and see an opportunity and take the opportunity. Learn something, if you have to, from a dishonest steward. But then the, the second big passage in Luke chapter 16 is the one we read together about the rich man and Lazarus. It gives us a picture immediately. And again, this is a, this is a picture that confuses us. At first, we're not sure exactly what to do with this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, we look at that. This is a picture we can imagine. This is ostentatious wealth. The, um, the French word for this is nouveau riche. New money. New money is showy. This is showy new money. He's wealthy and he wants to show it. He, he feasts sumptuously every day. That doesn't just mean that he eats well. It means that every day is like a feast. So he's not working. He's, uh, he's now so wealthy he doesn't have to work. Every day is like a feast day. And he, he, he wears purple and fine linen every day. Doesn't make a whole lot of, of sense to us necessarily, but purple was the rarest and most expensive color. I love history. I love visiting historic places. One of my goals was to uh, visit all of the homes of the founders of this nation that are, are still standing. Most of them are, are uh, preserved, and uh, some of them are national historic sites, you know, Mount Vernon, Montpelier, and, um, 
Monticello, I mean, the, these, these, these houses are there, and you can go see them. So one of my favorites is a house called Homewood, which was the home of Charles Carroll, who signed the Declaration of Independence, and uh, it is in Baltimore, and uh, it's still there. Charles Carroll, name is right there on the Declaration of Independence. He, uh, a lot of his money paid for the Revolutionary Army. It just so happens that uh, my wife and I have the privilege of living in a home that is a replica of Homewood. The, the, the thing, if you visit Homewood or you visit Mount Vernon, you will walk in, you'll notice that the, the walls of these rooms and these revolutionary homes are painted very bright colors. And um, the entryways are usually green and the dining rooms are often a different color of green or a, a very bright color of red. And uh, the rooms on the sunny side of the house will be painted yellow on the inside. And you'll, you'll look at that and you'll probably think, this, this looks like uh, very good interior design. But it was more than that. It was a showy sign of wealth. Paint was one of the most expensive uh, materials in colonial America. There, there, there was no artificial or synthetic color, it had to be made right out of whatever color source was available. Green required copper and was extremely expensive. So if you wanted to build a house and show people just how wealthy you were, then in the entryway, you painted the walls green and then you reminded them of it again when they sat down to dinner and they were surrounded by this green or a beautiful cranberry red. It was a way of saying, I've got money, look at my walls. Well, this man wore purple. It's the same principle. It, 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 purple came from Asia Minor. It had to be mined, and then it had to be made and, and refined. And it, it's kings wore purple. This guy's trying to look like he's a king. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you have the most dramatic contrast here we can imagine. The rich man's so rich that he can wear purple every day. The rich man's so rich that he wears linen. The rich man's so rich that he feasts every day as if every day is Thanksgiving. He doesn't work. He does nothing but show off his wealth. And, and yet, in the same picture as this man who's so poor, he is as poor as the rich man was rich. And, and not only that, he is covered with sores. Now, remember something here, because this is, this is something that we often miss. A bad theology had developed during the time of the Old Testament. Bad theology came down to this. You can look at someone and know if God likes them, if God's favor is upon them. Because if they are rich and healthy, God loves them. If they are poor and unhealthy, then you can just say God doesn't love them. That's a very bad theology. Jesus makes that very, very clear. For example, in John chapter 9 with the, uh, the man who was born blind. But there was something else. If you had sores on your body, you could not go into the temple. So you have this rich man. Everybody would have welcomed him to church. After all, he's rich. And then there is this poor man covered with sores. And he's so hungry, he desires to eat merely that which fell from the rich man's table. 
And then the ultimate indignity is even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, you can divide human beings in many different ways. But one of the easiest ways is between the dog people and the cat people. Every once in a while, there's a dog-cat person. They are rare and rarely honest. I am a dog person. I do not hate cats. I love dogs. I think God made dogs for us because we need one animal that just adores us. There are other animals that want to eat us. This morning's New York Times has an article about the fact that all the beaches on Cape Cod are shut down because the great white sharks are there in such numbers. It's like Jaws, only this time it's real. (laughs) And uh, I don't ever want to meet a great white shark. But I rarely meet a dog who doesn't want to meet me. You know, we need dogs. I I tell people every every middle school age boy desperately needs a dog because a middle age a middle school boy is the least emotionally equipped creature on the planet (laughs) he spends half his time trying to figure out what his mother is talking about and why he's in trouble The sad thing is, when his dad comes home and tries to explain it, he's often as confused as the boy. The fact is, (laughs) middle school boys look at men and think they figured all this out. Well, sort of, some days. But nonetheless, you you, you know what it's like, and you're just out of emotional tools. And then the dog comes up to you and just says, I think you're God. (laughs) And you know exactly what I mean. That dog just, just loves you and just wants to be loved and... We, we love dogs that way. But that's not the dog that's in Luke chapter 16. Not even close. The dogs that are referred to almost everywhere in the scripture are scavengers. They are not here to encourage Lazarus, but to carry him off like buzzards. It's a picture of such contrast. The rich man couldn't be more rich. The poor man could not be more poor and more pathetic. But then the picture changes. And and, and here's where, as Jesus tells us this, he tells us that the next scene, however, is not the rich man's house. It's not the doorway outside the rich man's house. It is on the other side of death where the rich man is in Hades. He is in hell. He, He died even as Lazarus died. And now he is in Hades, and we are told in verse 23, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. It's an amazing passage because now we are told. Now we are told that on the other side of death, it's the exact opposite. The rich man has nothing. In fact, he's got less than nothing. He is in torment in the flames of hell. And Lazarus doesn't have nothing. He has everything. He's being comforted in Abraham's bosom, which is to say he is the guest of honor at at Abraham's table. Abraham, the father of Israel, he, he, he is being honored by Abraham. And the rich man cannot figure out why. 
You see, if, if that bad theology were true, then it would be the rich man with Abraham, and it would be Lazarus in hell. If, if we can look now and say, I know God's favor is on him, and I know God's, God's judgment is on her, then uh, we can say, we'll, we'll know exactly who's going to be in heaven and hell just by looking. And uh, Jesus says, you better watch out. That conventional theology is conventionally wrong. And of course, the entire gospel is about the fact that heaven is not financially qualified. Heaven is not even for those who are better morally than others. Heaven is for those who've come to have their sins forgiven through their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, period. But right now we have the picture of the rich man in torment and, and, and Lazarus being comforted by Abraham. And then the rich man calls out to Abraham. And notice what he says. He, he, he calls out to Abraham. Abraham and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Just a little footnote here. Don't let anyone tell you that the flames of hell are not real because Jesus says they are. Lutheran bishop last week declared that hell is real, but it's empty. Well, that message is from the pits of hell. Because the Bible makes very clear that, yes, hell is real. The Bible also makes clear hell is not empty. Abraham answers him. Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. A very important principle Jesus tells us next. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none can cross from there to us. This tells us that eternity is fixed before we die and will not be changed. There will be no opportunity after death to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the imperative to evangelism. It, it, as Jesus said in John chapter 9, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Once death happens, there is no evangelism. And, and there's no passing from hell to heaven nor from heaven to hell. Abraham says, there is no way that I can send Lazarus to you. I don't want to send Lazarus to you. But if I did want to send Lazarus to you, I wouldn't be able to send Lazarus to you to dip his finger in water and cool your tongue because you're in anguish in that flame. Can't do it. N notice that it's not over, though. The rich man doesn't give up. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment lest they also come into this place of torment I have five brothers he has never demonstrated any concern for anyone else until now and now it's for his five brothers and he's concerned about them because they are just like he is there were six brothers who were exactly alike his, his five brothers are still sitting at that table. They are still just as uncaring. They are still just as worldly. And they are still just as headed for hell. And so 
the rich man says, if you cannot send Lazarus to me, then send Lazarus to my brothers so that he may warn them. Now, I get the logic of this. I really do. I think you get the logic, too. Th th this does make sense. It, it, makes, it makes a certain sense to us. How are you going to get the attention of those brothers? How, how are you going to break through their materialism? How are you going to break through their worldliness? How are you going to get their attention so that they will repent of their sins and turn to God? Well, send a dead man who will tell them to repent. You know, on a certain basis, I think it's a brilliant plan. I think if a dead man I knew was dead showed up and told me anything, I'd pay attention. I'd like to think so. But Abraham's not buying it at all. And, and, and what we have is actually the climax of the passage. It's one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament. Abraham's response is this. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, you have to understand something. The phrase... Moses and the prophets means the Bible. And of course, Jesus would have been referring in, this, in this, this account to the Old Testament, as we call it. And the Old Testament here was commonly known as Moses and the prophets. The books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and then the rest just described as the prophets. So when someone in the first century said Moses and the prophets, they mean the Bible. So Abraham is saying to him, I'm not going to send Lazarus to them. I don't need or should not need to send Lazarus to them. I can't send Lazarus to them. But they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible let them be warned by the Bible. Let, let, let them be convicted of their sin by the Bible. Let, let, let them be informed of the gospel by the Bible. And notice what the rich man says. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. It's an astounding statement. It's breathtaking in its audacity when we understand it. The rich man dares to say to Abraham, the Bible's not enough. The, the, the Bible's not going to do it. We've got to come up with a better plan than the Bible. Brothers and sisters, I wanted us to turn to this passage because this is the temptation that comes to every church. This is the temptation that comes to every denomination and every generation to think we've got to have a better plan than the Bible. And, uh, and frankly, all around us are churches that are evidently thinking they found a better plan than the Bible because whatever they're doing is not what the Bible says, and they're not teaching the Word, and they're not preaching the Bible. I wanted us to turn to this passage, for one thing, just to look to one another and recognize we don't have plan B. All we've got is plan A. How many times in the Old Testament, just repeatedly, 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 are we told that the only source of wisdom and knowledge and truth is the Word of God? How, how, how many testimonies to God's Word do we need? And then, and then in the New Testament, how many times are we told that it is the first responsibility of the church to preach the Word of God? How many times do we hear Paul speak to someone like Timothy and say, preach the word in season and out of season? 
Why? Because every word of the scripture is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We don't have a plan B. I fully recognize this room. I've never been in it before. But as I said, I was raised in it, just in a different place. Even down to the, uh, the 1920s era construction. Church architecture is one of my interests, and I think I can tell you almost exactly why this building was planned as it was planned. The church I grew up in in Lakeland, Florida, almost exactly alike. There's a reason why when you walk into this church, you have a pretty good idea that it's a Baptist church. Why? 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 You certainly know it's a Protestant church in the sense that it's not a Catholic church. Why? Because there's a pulpit right here at the center. The, the, the piece of furniture that cries out primary attention is the pulpit. Not, not an altar on which the mass is conducted, but but a pulpit from which the Bible is preached. And if you go to the historic European cathedrals, you will find pulpits, but you will not find them in the center of the place of worship. You will find them off to the side. And oftentimes you will even find them in, in, uh, because the, the nave, the, the, the sanctuary is so long as the great cathedral. Sometimes you will find the pulpit even off to the side about a middle in, in the sanctuary, about halfway down the aisle of the, of, of the sanctuary, of the cathedral, you'll, you'll find the pulpit. Sometimes it's high, and, the, and I've preached in some of these. You've got to go up circular steps in order to get 20 or 30 feet above the congregation. I've, I've had the honor of preaching in the high pulpit of Martin Luther in Wittenberg and in Germany, but you know what? It's off to the side, and as much as that building is one of the most beautiful places of worship in the history of the Christian church there in Germany, if it were as I would turn it into a Baptist church, that pulpit's going to be ripped off the wall and put right in the middle. Because the first mark of the church is the preaching of the Word of God. And the one thing that has to take place is the preaching of the Word of God. And it is so central to our worship that it's central to the building and it's right here. My boyhood pastor never trusted musicians. He had the pulpit bolted to the floor <laughs> so that no singing group could ever move the pulpit. They'd have to work around the pulpit. Now, I will tell you, I love that. I love that. Bolt it to the floor. Make everyone else stand around it. In the church when I was growing up, you could not make, and this is an historic Southern Baptist church, you could not make announcements from the pulpit. You could do nothing but read the word of God and preach the word of God from the pulpit. There was a lectern down here that had a microphone on it, and that's where announcements were made. Now, I'm not saying there's anything in God's word that says that's the way it should be. I'm just telling you, as a little boy, I saw what it meant for the word of God to be central. The only thing you can do in this pulpit, which is in the middle of the room and dominates everything else, is read and preach the word of God, period. The centrality of preaching defines what it means to be a church. <clears throat> to be Baptist is to recognize that so much that we have no excuse not to know that 
even just if we walk into the building. The rich man's plan is very clear. Just send a dead man and, and my brothers will believe. They're worldly, they're materialistic, they're busy. And let me just ask you, if you don't hear similar kinds of things being said, or if you don't hear them said, then you see them being done by churches, churches that are doing the craziest things, as if that's evangelism. Churches holding a spectacle. Churches trying to do this or trying to do that, other than preaching the word of God. The fact is that there are very limited plans in the New Testament. Personal evangelism, which means Christians sharing the gospel with those who do not yet believe in a personal conversation. And, and that is central to the New Testament plan. There are churches who would like to find some way around that. And, and, and then the preaching of the word of God. And uh, I had the, uh, the privilege of being chairman of a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, now more than 20 years ago, almost 25 years ago. And uh, I, I can still remember some pastors in Louisville saying, you know, I'm not sure people will still turn out for preaching. Well, we filled the stadium every single night for preaching. And people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ by preaching. And there were several pastors who said, that's the most amazing thing. I, I haven't seen preaching like that. I haven't heard preaching like that. I haven't seen preaching work like that. And yet, when they went back to their churches... It was almost as if they said, well, now what do we do? And preach the word. But the haunting issue in this passage, in this text, is how it ends. And I hope you heard it and felt it when we read the text together. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Look at verse 31. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they won't hear the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It sounds like a good plan. But it won't work. If they won't hear the Bible, then they won't hear it from a man raised from the dead. And, and, and you know it immediately. The one who spoke this passage is the one who rose from the dead. And, and you know exactly what happened after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. What did the people who had crucified him say? Oh, well, we, we must have lost his body. They said, it certainly isn't possible that he was raised from the dead. They wouldn't believe before. They didn't believe after. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, 
then they won't believe even if one should rise from the dead. But you know, the whole purpose of this passage is not to end in the negative. Just the realization, well, here's the bad news. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, then they won't hear or believe even if one should rise from the dead. But actually, the entire context is good news. Here's the reality. This is God's word. God loves us so much, he gave us his word. And here's the good news. When this word is preached, it penetrates human hearts, and people who would not come to God do come to God. They would not come to repentance. They do come to repentance. They would not come to faith. They do come to faith because the Holy Spirit takes this word into the hearts and does surgery. And, and not only that, for those who are believers, the Holy Spirit takes the word into the hearts of believers and conforms us to the image of Christ. There's no plan B. That's why Paul said to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Preach it when it's popular and when it's unpopular. Preach it when they like it and preach it when they don't like it. Preach it, <laughs> preach it when it works and when it doesn't look like it's working. I love the way Martin Luther put it. He said, because the Bible is often working most powerfully when to your eyes, it's not working. Because the work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart is invisible. The preacher may preach on Sunday morning. And by the way, when I, when I teach preachers, I, I try to warn them in advance, they're going to be disappointed. Sunday by Sunday. Because radical change doesn't show up as people are going out the door after worship. I've never had a Baptist deacon leave worship and take me by the hand and say, you know, I was convicted by the word. I was going to embezzle some money this week, but not going to now. I've, I've never had someone leave on Sunday morning, take my hand and say, you know, because you preached on that text, I'm not going to commit adultery this week. But you know what? The, the confidence of the word of God is that that's exactly what does happen. That's, that's exactly what does happen. There are, there, there are children hearing the word of God whose hearts are being conformed in ways and, and, and reached in ways you can't see. And it's just, like, it's just like in parenting. There are very few instantaneous successes. There are very few magical moments when the child comes to the parent and says, you know, I was really being pretty stupid back there that uh, your plan is absolutely right. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, just want you to know that I now am absolutely convinced that you have the superior wisdom. I'm with you. No, but you know what? The Lord has allowed me to live long enough that I have the joy right now of watching my sweet daughter as the mother to two little boys. And I have the joy of watching her as a faithful Christian mom, along with her husband, as a faithful Christian dad, 
raising these two little boys, now three and one, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you know what I hear from her is what she heard from me and from her mother. And now I see how that word had its effect in ways I could not imagine. And that's humbling because where did I get it? It was through the faithfulness of my mother and my father who raised me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I never, when I was like 10 or 12 or 14 or 15, went up to them and said, you know, one day I'm going to raise children just exactly the way you're raising me. This is exactly right. Just keep doing it, Mom. Just keep doing it, Dad. I never did that. And that's exactly how it is for the preacher. You preach the word of God in season and out of season. And, and you're not sure exactly what God's doing with it. Until you're in a deacon's meeting and there's a hard decision to be made and, uh, and a man speaks and says, well, the word of God says, and you realize this is exactly as it should be. We don't have a plan B, we only have a plan A. It's the preaching of the word of God. And this is, in Luke chapter 16, one of, let's just admit it, the oddest testimonies to the power of the word of God we could imagine. This dialogue between the rich man and Abraham that we are privileged to overhear because Jesus tells us about it. It follows that strange parable in which Jesus said, it would be helpful if some of my people, the sons of light, were as shrewd as the children of darkness. And so I've come from Southern Seminary with great joy to be with you at the First Baptist Church at Gasden to tell you, A, be as shrewd as crooks. And two, preach the Bible. Honor the preaching of the Bible. Demand the preaching of the Bible. Because there is no plan B. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the word which tells us of the gospel, that tells us that salvation comes to sinners by faith and repentance, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust. Father, we declare Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised by the power of God on the third day and ever living our Savior and Lord. And Father, we declare right now salvation to all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Father, we declare this because you have revealed it in your word. And Father, we hear your word. And we pray that there will be others who will hear your word also and believe and believing be saved. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.